I'm going back to Korea. It's a, it's a kind of homecoming for mm. me. Um, so this is a, a wonderful way to um, start my journey back to the motherland. It's a fascinating journey. I enjoyed reading about it in your book, actually. And oh, thank uh, I, you. I saw the piece in the Korea Times. I think um, identity is becoming a bigger and bigger issue these days. Uh, Isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it? Because there's just so much, uh, I guess, globalization and displacement. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think there's such a, a hunger to know one's identity. And, and it's not taught in schools. And if you don't know your identity, then then how would you know your your destiny? And it, it was a professor, Edward Chang from UC Riverside, who who said that in a speech at a conference I attended in, in 2000. Mm -hmm. And he said that if you don't know your identity, you will not be able to know your destiny and purpose in life. Mm -hmm. It's quite thought provoking. <laughs> it, it is because it's. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to look at other people and to judge others, but to, to look at yourself and to know who you are and, and where you're from can be a very scary thing, actually. It's not easily yes. done, I don't think. No, and there's a rise in racism. There's a rise in polarization in, in the US, in Canada, uh, all over. And with the rise of China, mm. uh, I remember the 1990s when the Japanese were uh, discriminated against because they were... Uh, perceived as taking over economically do yeah. you remember that the japanese yeah. threat and uh so it's it's like a repeat all over again with the mainland chinese snapping up homes and and this time it's, it's quite serious because people in the west and all over the world they're not able to afford a, a basic human right their own home mm. and um and so in in places like vancouver bc canada where i grew up uh, because the mainland Chinese have been coming in and some some allege that it's money laundering, that that it's, you know, buying homes is a way of um, cleaning their money, you know, mm. gray, a gray area uh, of money. And uh, it's, you know, it's caused a lot of young people to move out into the hinterlands in Chilliwack. And, you know, these are these are little towns, smaller towns and and uh, suburbs that that take about an hour or more to drive into downtown, mm. you know, so it's it's become such a problem. And and I think the rise in racism, especially towards Asians, you know, it, it will continue to rise, I, I perceive, you know, with with the increasing rise of, of mainland China. Mm. The, the racism isn't is in institutionalized, I would suggest, perhaps. I mean, we saw what happened, I think, to, you know, uh, Japanese people in, in Northern America during the war. Mm. And it, right, it seems right. to be manifesting differently, though, these days, I would suggest. It's it is. It is. You mean towards the the mainland Chinese. Um, it's it's grassroots. It's it's underlying and it's overt, you know, with the attacks, the, the anti-Asian, and especially with the Wuhan, or, or they're calling people the Wuhan virus, you mm. know, in, in some parts of the West. And there's been some really strange uh, physical attacks, violent attacks against older Asian men and women, even younger women, Asian women. Mm. Uh, perhaps that's because there's this perception that Asian women are subservient, and they won't fight back, you know, mm -hmm. and that's, that's not me. I mean, you know, Someone better run if they find me in a dark alley. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect attitude to have, Sylvia. And I noticed when reading your books, if I bring it here, when reading A Long yeah. Road to Justice, that I was I saw you continually reference your own identity and this idea that had you been born 70 years earlier so there was that yes. empathy with previous right. generations that was a mm. a common thread that i saw uh, repeated throughout the chapters that those traumatic and horrific experiences those real back alleys yes. of the past could have been yours so yeah. you've spoken a little bit about your identity already but how did your identity play a role in, in your research, your writing of that book and what you came to understand? No, I, I love this perceptive question because this, this drove so much of my journey and I didn't even realize it, right? And even mm. the fact that I'm Korean, I, my parents immigrated to Korea uh, when I was two, I grew up, you know, feeling 
very not Korean or not wanting to be Korean and mm -hmm. rejecting my own identity. And, um, and, you know, it's a painful thing, you know, when you're made fun of because, you know, you smell like kimchi or your, your childhood friends come over and they express shock at the jar of like, you know, a dead animal. It looks like a dead animal. And, mm. um, you know, just feeling different, feeling not accepted, not feeling attractive or, uh, yeah, just accepted. And, and also, you know, experiencing racism, like racial taunts, uh, people not knowing where Korea was, it, mm. it was a real traumatic thing. And I guess I didn't realize it until, um, you know, decades uh, later, you know, when mm. I, I started to write this and I, it wasn't until several years ago, even, you know, I'm, I lived over four and a half decades and <laughs> it wasn't until several years ago where I really made a, a decision of my will to say, okay, I'm going to accept my Korean identity. Mm. And, um, and, and part of the, the journey sparked when I met, um, and I started researching the comfort women, the Wiambu, mm -hmm. Japanese military wartime slavery. And, um, you know, when I was 15, turning 16, you know, I, I had, you know, hormones, puberty, um, all that raging, identity issues, you mm -hmm. know, the pain of the immigrant life, not being able to communicate with my parents deeply because of the language barrier, because I had stopped speaking in Korean by at at the age of 12, um, because I wanted to speak perfect English. You mm -hmm. know, again, it was that wanting to fit in. Um, but when I started researching the comfort woman, I realized, my goodness, there's there's generational pain here. Even mm -hmm. though I, I didn't articulate it like that at 15, 16, years later I did, that this something was passed down. And this something I couldn't put my finger on it. And when I started reading, so after I started digging into comfort women, which was not a lot because, you know, even, even after university and I was, I, I, I heard about this conference where mm. Kim Soon Duk was speaking in Washington, DC, there wasn't a lot of English language material out there, um, but it sparked something, you know, it triggered something, this, this discomfort this generational racial hatred towards the Japanese that I didn't know was there. Mm -hmm. But then I started to piece together all the, the, the little clues from my parents, from my relatives, you know, they, they didn't buy Japanese products. They, you know, my, my great uncle spoke, spoke fluent Japanese, but he refused to buy any Japanese cars. And this was at mm -hmm. the, the height of, you know, the Japanese producing different cars and, and stereos and things like that. But um, yeah, that's what that's what made me realize that at, in my DNA, I mm. am Korean. And it made me think, wow, like, had this been me, you know, born in that era, born into that family, I, you know, I could have been dragged away as a Wiambu, right? Mm. And, and that it was like a an empathy that I'm glad I had that revelation because most people, I guess, they they don't open their minds to it. But if 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 one sits down and opens one's heart and mind mm. to the plight of others, there there are always ways to find um, you know commonalities. You know, no man is an island. Right. Yeah, I love John Donne and his work. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> you, and you do write in your book about this, Sylvia, this collective memory or this generational mm -hmm. trauma that you describe it. Yes. When you talk about that, do you think that this, it, does it equally distribute across all Koreans or is there something in the, the female or the woman's experience with this as well? I think it's in every every Korean. It's mm. um, if you look at different people groups, there are epic events, uh, milestone, you know, wounds of history yeah. um, that mark a generation. Like the, there's the Gwangju massacre in in recent history in Korea. Mm. Um, in mainland China, it's it's Tiananmen Square, right? Yeah, and the Cultural Revolution in um you know in in the uk i mean just you can list you know specific traumatic violent events brexit right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <It's>... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
half a joke. Okay, sorry. depending on yeah. who you are, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I would say yes. There's something that Korean women in the diaspora can mm. really relate to and identify with when it comes to the weambu, mm. when it comes to North Korean. Um, bride trafficking, you know, the plight of, mm. of these North Korean women in, in China. Uh, but I'd say for a people group, it's it's something that the, the wounds of history, the, the generational pain and racial hatred, it it may not may not manifest until like a generation or two later. Mm -hmm. And uh, I began reading some Holocaust literature and began to speak to uh, some, well, the Holocaust literature was about the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. And I spoke with um, Japanese internment, um, you know, children of those who were interned in Canada and in America, where because they were of Japanese descent, mm -hmm. everything was stolen from them by the government and they were rounded up into the into a prison effectively. Um, and, and it was, you know, their, their conditions were atrocious. And what ha happened was with these children of Japanese internment survivors and Holocaust survivors, these, these victims, the first generation of victims never spoke about it. Mm -hmm. And they, they were silenced or out of, I guess, just maybe that was their coping mechanism and they shut down. And then um, one Japanese lady said, that it was the grandchildren of a Japanese internment survivor who said, I have this pain and I don't know where it comes from. And that's how I felt when I was a teenager around the time when I read about the comfort women. Mm. And I felt like there was this unresolved something, some mm. pain that I couldn't put my finger on. And it wasn't totally personal pain, but in you know later on when i look back i think that was the korean han the concept of han mm. and connie kang the late um author and the first korean american to work for a major newspaper in the united united states and she was my uh journalism mentor she passed away but in her book the land of the morning calm she calls han this uncontrollable of woe right mm. and uh so it's 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 quite fascinating to me that here i am transplanted um you know my parents migrated to canada and i'm trying to erase everything korean about me and yet i can't i can't escape it i can't get away mm. from it and then now part of my journey is i'm now um you know producing a, a feature film a movie that has uh, a strong element of Korean history, you know, about the Weambu, mm. um, to uh, catalyze or hopefully spur on, you know, more reconciliation, conciliation, like a reckoning and kind of bringing closure to the wounds of history, especially of, of what the Koreans collectively suffered at the hands of the Japanese during the colonial period and during the war. Mm. Um, and now I'm, I'm also in, in talks possibly working in in the Korean industry and traveling back to Seoul more often, possibly even living there, which is kind of frightening for me, but <laughs> <laughs> but I'm open. I'm open. And it just yeah. feels so strange that wow, like at the end, ultimately my destiny is partly in Korea. <laughs> yeah. There's there's it's it's a fascinating place to live. I've been here for a couple of decades and I, I do love wow. it. I'm sure you I'm sure you yeah. fit right in. There's a couple of things that I want to pick up on there, Sylvia. One being mm. what you said about Connie Kang and her work on hand. But just yes. before that, yes. uh, you mentioned looking into Holocaust survivors and, and how it took some generations. Yes. And now exactly. in the West, there's there's a big focus on the Holocaust. There's a lot of laws related to Holocaust denial being illegal and such forth. We've, it, it, it's sort of become part of the collective conversation and psyche. And, and this is from the institutional legal level down to how we conduct ourselves in everyday life, I think. Do you see the, the stories of what's happened with Japanese colonization of Korea and other parts of Asia has do you see that that conversation's been played out differently then do you see any absolutely absolutely no that's um that's something 
thing that when I was researching uh, my book on uh, Japanese wartime sex slavery mm. uh, with the, the lawyers, the Jewish lawyers and the Korean American lawyers and activists um, all unanimously felt that the American government favored um, the Holocaust issue, even setting up an office in the US State Department um, that you know, spread awareness about what happened uh, in the Holocaust. Mm. And, um, and compared to how the, the Americans really strengthened their ties with Japan and um, contributed to the whitewashing of you know, war crimes and the colonial history. And, um, and so there, there was just a collective conclusion that you know, because of you know, the, the rise, the spread of communism, mm. um, this was like a unilateral decision on the American, American government to check um, China and um, and to really you know lift up their relationship, their their bilateral union with with Japan, and um, and I yeah I, it it makes me feel um, yeah ups, upset you know I mean all of us were were quite upset. Barry Fisher said the same thing. He was a Holocaust lawyer, mm-hmm. and he explicitly said yeah it's it's you know it's it's racism. It's, it's racism, but how, I mean, how can you articulate that? Yeah. And, um, but, you know, Korea has been, um, who, who was that scholar who said we're a shrimp between whales, right? Mm-hmm. And with the rise of K-pop, I mean, someone strategically said 20 years ago, okay, we're going to have, we're going to expand our soft power. Singapore is the same. Singapore is surrounded on every side by Muslim nations their military is trained by the Israelis, you know, and Israel is, is in a similar situation as well, you know, mm-hmm. just a tiny little nation and dependent on soft power, dependent on, um, you know, the, the brain power of its, of its people. And um, so with, with this area, I just feel like, you know, with our history, I, I have such a passion to raise awareness about what happened to the 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 Wiyambu, the Japanese wartime sex slaves mm-hmm. through a movie it's always been a dream for the last um, i'd say since 2000 the year 2000 2001 um, and in you know after i watched schindler's list i i said you know my dream is i want to make a schindler's list and catapult just like schindler schindler's list mm-hmm. brought the holocaust to a global level of awareness. I want to do the same for the the women, the the elderly women. Um, There's less than 40 of them in the world right now. And how amazing would it be that there would be some survivors who could see um, just like a global push, like one final push for um, like a healing apology, an apology that that brings closure to the the devastation, the generational trauma, the, mm. the racism that then and now. Um, so yeah, that that's really my dream. And oh, I have to tell you this anecdote. Mm-hmm. I was lecturing in, in America and um, I shared my dream at the end. I said, you know what? Like I'm because whenever I share this in you know other other countries, everyone's like gobsmacked everyone is so floored because they didn't realize what what had happened and and how come this wasn't more well known and i've had um you know when i talk about the the rage and the anger that the chinese have expressed in some riots in china you know overturning cars setting fires to businesses and in korea people chopping off their fingers setting themselves on fire and um and and that there's this you know just deep underlying race racism that the mm-hmm. Japanese have towards the other Asian groups and that the the racial resentment and hatred that that Koreans and Chinese and others have towards the, the Japanese for not really bringing closure to what happened in history and so I've had in Macon Georgia that's where Martin Luther King was quite active um, mm-hmm. I was speaking to a, a, an audience made up of both Caucasians and African Americans and one one of them came up and said you just spoke a parable about race relations in america mm-hmm. and um and i thought wow you know that's that's pretty powerful 
because it, this could be a, an instrument, you know, in, in different countries, you know, to talk about racism, which I feel very passionate about because I felt the searing humiliation of being discriminated against and, and uh, right. And, and mm. anyway, and another uh, anecdote I want to share quickly yeah. is, um, so while I was lecturing, sorry, I, I meant to share this, but I went off another tangent. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I was lecturing and I said, yeah, you know, it's my passion. I really, really want to make a movie and, and I want it to be like Schindler's List. I want, I want something, you know, I want the world to know what, mm. what happened to these survivors of wartime, Japanese wartime sex slavery, because at least um, like more than 10 of them, when I interviewed these women, more than 10, can't remember exactly how many, but pretty much almost all of them said, I want the world to know what happened to me. Mm. And, um, and then at the end of one lecture, this woman came up to me and said, with, with a piece of paper and said, you know what, my, my favorite cousin's husband was an editor on Schindler's List. Here's his name, number, email. Wow. <laughs> and I, I, I didn't, I just felt like that was a sign for yeah. me to just keep going, even mm. though it, it, it feels like an impossible thing, but I, Steven Spielberg had it right. Like, I think you have to reach the masses. I think you have to shift mindsets, mm -hmm. open people's eyes. And um, I mean, that's, that's where the influence is now, isn't it? It's in media, it's in uh, music, mm -hmm. uh, you name it, entertainment. I've always been fascinated by the idea that narratives move people's minds more than yeah. statistics. There was the, um, right. there was all the stories of George Orwell and he would write sort of uh -huh. political treaties on the dangers mm -hmm. or the, the, the possibilities of communism and nobody paid any attention. And, and, mm -hmm. and then he wrote Animal Farm and everybody mm -hmm. sort of said, oh, wow, I get it now. And uh, oh, right. similar things happened in South Korea where women have had a very difficult experience in terms of, um, uh, wage inequality and, and patriarchy and all the statistics and data was well known, but it, it was a book. It was that uh, Kim Ji Young, born 1982, uh, later turned into a film that suddenly centered the conversation on something. It was it was a narrative. It was it was fiction that brought the nonfiction into in, into greater relief, I think. So if you do explore that through a film, I think that'll be great. Just going on because Han is, you've mentioned Han a couple of times yes. now, and I, I yes. want to touch on that. And it's very big right. in art, actually. Right. A lot of people I know are fascinated by it. A yeah. lot of people yeah. I know think it's just a, mm -hmm. uh, a cultural construction and it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. There might be some people out there that have no idea what Han is. So right. if you can explore it a little bit more, Sylvia, what, sure. how do we understand Han from your yeah. perspective? Yeah, wow, I think it's so wild that I'm speaking about Han with a British academic in Seoul <laughs> <laughs> who knows Korean better than me. He probably knows Korean history better than me. <laughs> it's so wild and I love it. I love yeah, that we can reach out too. and do this on, on the, our, our podcast, this podcast of yours. Um, yeah. yeah, in addition to Han, I was enraptured and captivated by the concept of Sonnamu, pine mm -hmm. tree. Mm. So, um, I'd say I focus more on Sonnamu, the, the pine tree, because Han, it just seems so depressing. Mm. And um, it's, it is like a, a strain of sadness in, in the Korean people. And, and perhaps that's what makes Koreans, what makes us so sentimental. Perhaps that's what makes uh, our Korean dramas the way like the powerful, emotionally manipulative storylines <laughs> they are. <laughs> yeah, I've seen them, yep. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so I'd say Han is, um, yeah, I mean, I've seen it manifest. Like I'll, I'll give an example and then mm. uh, remind me about the Sonnamu. I want to talk about Sonnamu with you if you're open. Um, sure. Uh, with this experience I had, okay, so how I healed the the racial, the generational racial hatred, the generational trauma, um, because I, I, I have seen generational traumas in certain people groups, like for instance, and I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean to sound stereo, like I'm stereotyping, mm -hmm. but with the Vietnamese people in Vancouver, in this 
one family that I was interacting with when I was younger. I used to be a youth pastor at a Korean Southern Baptist church, believe it or not, when I was an undergrad. And um, there were some really rough kids. And, um, and then I've, and then I've sort of had an interest in these at risk kids, even after my youth pastor um, tenure. Mm -hmm. And so these kids of some Vietnamese boat people, you know, their parents were, were very severely traumatized. And I could see it in their children, you know, and so these children, three, three brothers ended up in foster care. And, and the way they swore at each other, treated each other. Um, one of them even hacked into my email, somehow guessed my email password. Wow. Was it Sonnamu? <laughs> it, it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was Han. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. Um, so I just, it was just too much for me. Like I was like, whoa, um, I'm, I, I wasn't equipped. I, I didn't have the skills to deal with that level of um, generational trauma in, mm. in these kids. So I, I, it was so, so visible. Uh, but, you know, I, I mentioned that I had this resentment towards the Japanese that came up uh, after I started researching how systematic, um, systematically they dragged Korean women all over the Asia Pacific on the front lines of war. Mm. Many of them were deceived. Um, some were, you know, just, yeah, taken. Um, but probably most were deceived through the promise of a job. And it was under the, the voluntary labor course. So of course, it's, there's some um, collaborators involved, right? Mm. If, if it's under a law to mobilize Koreans to support the Japanese war effort. And, um, so I was, I had a Japanese Canadian best friend. I had a, a really lo lovely Japanese Canadian French teacher. And, uh, but after I started researching, I just felt so uncomfortable. And then we were renting our basement out to uh, a new family from Japan. Mm. And suddenly I just felt this like, yeah, just a fear around the Japanese male tenant mm. <laughs> that is, <laughs> I didn't feel before. And, um, and I remember in the first few years when I was writing and researching about this, I just had a lot of anger and hatred dripping through my fingers as I'm typing on the keyboard. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it was in 2008, I was living in Beijing at the time. I moved to Beijing in 2004 to be closer to the survivors so that I could research. And um, so I traveled, I flew from Beijing to Hong Kong just for a short trip invited me to her church and said oh there's this Japanese Christian um, group and they're all about you know saying sorry and, and apologizing for the comfort women and rape of Nanking and all that and I was mm -hmm. like well I was so cynical right I was like oh okay well you know that could never replace an official government apology that, mm -hmm. that brings like deep profound healing and um, so I went and I sat there and, and, you know, they started speaking, sharing their testimonies, why they developed this heart. They see like the, uh, the discomfort that there's no unity between, you know, whenever they get together with Koreans and Chinese, there's always this discomfort. It's always mm -hmm. this in the back of their mind, like especially for mainland Chinese, because they, their education system really emphasized like what they suffered under the Japanese war and, and and by the Japanese military. So I'm sitting there and they started to say their apologies. And the, they first approached the Chinese and said, no, we're you know, at, on behalf of um, the Japanese people. Uh, we want to say we're deeply sorry. Please forgive us for all that you suffered at the hands of the Japanese uh, military during the war mm. and the Chinese began to bawl their eyes out they, they wept and then they turned to me and I'm thinking um, so this is 2008 yeah so I'm in my 30s and I'm thinking gosh I don't even feel Korean I'm like a white person trapped in a Korean body mm. and I don't think their apology would ever touch my heart and mm. so I you know I was stony faced and arms crossed and and then they turned to me and said, oh, Sylvia, you know, I, we're really sorry. Forgive us on behalf of the Korean or on behalf of, of the Japanese. We want to apologize to you and the Korean people. And I couldn't stop myself. I cried 
uncontrollably. I would say that was hot. I would say that was hot because I, I don't know where that came from. Mm. And it felt like a generational healing kind of like a, a release. And, um, and I've also uh, produced a film of this, a different Japanese Christian reconciliation team apologizing to the Chinese. So the Chinese must, maybe it's not Han, they probably mm. call it something else. But when these Japanese people, especially when this Japanese male pastor said yeah. sorry to these Chinese comfort women survivors, they, they were just uncontrollable, you know, unending tears, and then they were released, mm. and they were able to forgive. And it, the, the brightness in their face compared to before, it, it was remarkable. And for me, too, after that profound, life-changing experience, and, and I think it was because their apology was powered by love, mm -hmm. powered by sheer compassion. And there was no other agenda. And I was able to write differently. I became a different activist. I became very different in my focus in writing. I felt like, you know what? My mission is now to bring healing and, mm -hmm. and to write so that I can encourage and somehow be part of catalyzing uh, a racial reconciliation movement because a lot of the older generation bottle up these deep historical issues they bottle it up and i remember traveling to seoul in 2004 2005 and 2007 mm. and when i when i said to the taxi driver or my relatives yeah I'm, I'm researching this issue i'm writing about it like everyone was like there was like shame like a blanket mm. of shame like ooh, such a shameful topic or ooh, that's why would you be researching this sad history mm -hmm. and like nobody wanted to open up the pandora's box and then now i'm so delighted that it's the younger generation see again it's mm -hmm. skipped a few generations mm -hmm. and it's the younger generation that's so fired up and they see it for what it is it's like such an egregious crime against the korean people mm -hmm. you know they they see it so so clearly and they want to take action it, it's it's an amazing thing and i that's where my hope is it's not in the move i track the movement i tracked activists you know since 2001 or since 1999 really when i started writing about a few activists mm. um i it's so disjointed it's so disjointed and i knew the woman who was heading up the leading group in Korea. I met her a few times and I, I never felt comfortable with her, by the way, and I won't, won't name her, but she has been in legal trouble. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a sad thing because had the activists in different countries been more united, it, I think we mm. would have been able to make um, a more powerful impact. I Sorry, mean, I'm like tying, I'm, I'm bringing in too many issues. <laughs> It's great. I'm listening. And before we go into that Pandora's box that you, you yes. just mentioned, I mean, yeah. I, I think it would be completely understandable to go into this topic, like you said, initially with with anger, with resentment. But then there is also the, the opportunity to go into it as you perhaps are now doing a little bit more with with hope and yes. uh, with a certain mission to bring things forward. Before we go to the Pandora's box, Sylvia, you asked me to remind you about the pine tree. Oh, yes, yes. Your password. Um, and then, and then I, I want to tell you about this Japanese missionary man after and what mm. he said to me about my book, which was just so, so shocking. I'll, I'll tell you about that after. But um, no, the Sonamu. So here I am rejecting my own Korean identity for years. And yet I'm still fascinated by mm -hmm. <laughs> Korean concepts. And um, so, yeah, the Sonamu, it, it was something I wanted to Floor. It's something that um, I think about anytime I write about, you know, myself or anything related to Korea. I'm always thinking about the pine trees because through like centuries of attacks and enslavement and um, I can't remember his name, but there was an academic who wrote an article that came out last year and he said that the Koreans are probably have been the most enslaved, the, one of the most enslaved people groups because mm -hmm. of the um is kind of like a caste system right the yep. the haves and the have-nots and and then and he linked the 
the wartime sex slaves, uh, the Wiambu, to this cycle of history. And I thought, wow, you know, that's that's um, super interesting, and we need to dig into this more. And um, so I guess that's that's my uh, something I, I I'm drawn to the the fact that the pine tree is so evergreen, like mm. despite all seasons, despite the hardships, and I. I see that in the Koreans, there's this metal, like despite the uh, Han and the sadness, um, Koreans are fighters, you know, yeah. they they have that fighting spirit, maybe too much of it, too much of the amygdala that's, that's a little bit sensitive, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the flight, fight or flight response. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, that's, I, I see that, I see that in my family, I see that in, in the Korean people. And I want to be able to, um, yeah, communicate that in the the movies and the dramas and the songs and whatever else that I produce in, in the. Mm. Definitely survivors. I I think that goes uh, without any question that the Koreans yeah. still here. You mentioned I I want to get onto your book now a, a little bit sure, if I can, Sylvia, sure, because sure. Yeah. um I'm always a little bit cautious of how I approach the subject of the the sex slavery that was enacted by the Japanese during the colonization of Korea, because at some, at some stages, I'm unsure what words I should be using. Um, at other, you know, with comfort women, um, sex slavery, we right. the, the language is difficult for me. The, the, um, the, the subject matter itself can, can also be very difficult. And, and, and reading your book, it was, at times a difficult read because you really did explore it in in various ways is there like how do we approach this subject Sylvia or how did you find approaching it and having to deal with it to put it into words to put it into your mind to sort of you know absorb it into yourself what yeah, what do yeah. we learn from this experience Sylvia wow yeah no it was um no that's that's a very uh great question um I I have heard some survivors, uh, the the Japanese wartime sex slavery survivors, say, and a, a few even mentioned that to me. Don't don't call us comfort women, right? Mm. Um, and so that's that's a uh, it's it's a what do you call it? It's a struggle. I I try not to use it, but at the same time, it's what it's uh, recognizable, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and I know I know what they're saying that it is it it's a terrible uh, euphemism that they really resent, and um, so I I try my best not to use it, um, but I sometimes I couldn't help but use it. Mm -hmm. But I think because my heart is for them, I I I don't think they're going to react to me in the same way as a Japanese right wing person who's who's calling them a voluntary prostitute mm. so I think it depends on the heart of a person and I try not to use the word the term sex worker if 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 I can help it mm. although I don't judge women who um, say that's that's their right and they want to sell their bodies I I will not judge them but because of my experiences when I was working for uh, these billionaire families and directing money for them to uh, justice projects like HIV AIDS. I was in charge of this HIV AIDS fund mm -hmm. in Yunnan province and a migrant fund in Beijing. And I uh, directed a lot of money to every kind of humanitarian effort and, and, and to North Korea as well. And um, I, through, through this and through my media work, I had access to meeting a lot of um, survivors in, in sex slavery, or I call it sex slavery because I feel like when mm -hmm. I met these women, there was no sign, no indication that they voluntarily went into it, that mm -hmm. they feel empowered to sell their body. Um, no one has ever said that to me, but if, if there are, and I, but I have met an activist group where the women the, of, of this, NGO in Hong Kong where they say, um, you know, the women have a right to sell their bodies and we, we need to protect their right, right, mm -hmm. with labor laws and all that. And I mean, I'll never judge that, but it, it's, it was so um, 
uh, life altering for me to meet so many women. I mean, I'm, I'm someone, had I not had this experience, had I not moved to Asia, mm. I would have bought a house beside my parents. I probably would have been like a TV host in Canada, mm-hmm. you know, or a journalist or just led a really cushy, comfortable white picket fence life. Like so many of my friends that mm. I grew up with or went to university with and my, you know, my, my brothers, you know, my, my sister is more entrepreneurial, but I, and my parents, you know, just, I would have, I would have had that lifestyle and I would have been so, so insular, so focused on myself and, and fashion and the latest heels. And so for me to, to even, you know, I, I feel like I've, I've become a totally different person mm-hmm. and, and meeting people in suffering, it, it really, you know, it really changes you. I mean, I, I had some really crazy adventures, like sitting in some dangerous brothels because I'm trying to interview these women with an NGO worker and having these big gangster guys, like, you know, looking at me threateningly and, Mm. you know, crossing into different country, you know, through a back channel and then having to walk by, you know, soldiers with machine guns and, um, you know, being among heroin addicts who looked like they were going to rip out my diamond earrings, you know, Mm. (laughs) I've had some crazy experiences and I'd say that transformed me and that's made me more empathetic to -hmm. these people. So it's the exposure that's so key because had I just stayed in North America, I would never have had my eyes open to uh, the plight of, of women, Asian women and girls all over, um, who, and, and I, I argue this is a cycle repeating itself from the Japanese wartime sex slavery system. And it's because it was never uh, dealt with, it was never, um, there was no reckoning and, and no one ever came up, stepped up and said, this is wrong. You know, mm-hmm. we need to protect our sisters and daughters. This is heinous. We, we need to abolish this prostitution system, this forced prostitution system. Mm-hmm. No one ever said that. And so I believe it's it's a repeat of the cycle. And you know, some and I, some activists have told me that some of the Korean sur- survivors of Japanese wartime sex slavery, they were stuck in countries like Thailand and in other places in the Asia Pacific, Guam, whatnot. And the only thing they knew how to do was to sell their bodies. Mm-hmm. So they went from one frying pan to another. And then I heard from another person who felt that and this resonates with me that it was almost like this um, Japanese wartime sex slavery system for its prostitution system mm. was like the what it was like the gateway that opened up prostitution and sex trafficking that's going on now. And it, the same can be said of the opium routes, the opium routes, you know, there my friend was telling me the other day, she's she's a, a former researcher in that area. Now she's a businesswoman. But she used to go and research near the the China-Myanmar border. And then she was telling me that in the schools on the China side, in the tuck shop where they sell like snacks and gum and candies, Mm. they actually sell drugs. They sell drugs. Mm. And these these are the well-worn paths of the opium routes, right? So there's like this generational cycle going on. And even with the Asian women, like, you know, there was foot binding, concubinism. Mm. And so when I when I've been speaking about my book, I, I say to the women, the young women or women professionals of any age, that had it been 100 years ago, and we were alive, you know, we would have had our foot bound here in China, we might have been the second or third wife, mm-hmm. we, we wouldn't have had the opportunities to go to school. Um, we, we wouldn't have been seen as a person and given a name until we were married right mm. and um so it's it's such a profound thing that to think wow i have these choices and i felt the same way when i was at the opening of the the wartime sex slavery museum in nanjing china mm-hmm. and um and i remember walking through and there's so many of the victims were, were korean and they were, of course, Chinese as well. And yeah. um, the most, their most famous academic researcher in China, uh, uh, Professor Su Julian, he believes that there was like an equal number of Chinese um, victims as the Koreans, right? Mm-hmm. So people estimate Korean victims to be around 
you know, from 80,000 to 200,000 mm -hmm. and uh, somewhere in that ballpark. And he says, yeah, it's, it's about 200,000 Chinese victims. And I remember just walking through, there were like four or five, five huge buildings, yeah. all kind of facing a courtyard. And here I am, you know, just walking through freely. I had the freedom to fly in and out. And I remember sitting at the lunch table with the, the director of the museum and I started to cry. I couldn't control myself. Maybe that's the Han. I, I couldn't control my tears. And there were some adopted children of, of the um, wartime sex slaves there at the mm -hmm. table. And, and then the director, he's a man, he started to tear up. <laughs> and then I said, you know what? I'm crying because I have, I can come and go. I'm Korean. I'm a Korean woman and I can mm. come and go. And yet the Korean women here were trapped. You know, they, they were trapped and they couldn't leave. And it, it just, it was so, such sorrow. And I, I felt like I wasn't just crying for me. I was crying for my people group. Do you think when you talk about your experiences, Silver, in the various sort of opium routes in the brothels and, and yeah. speaking to, I know you spoke to um, some of the, the, the comfort women of the time, Kim Sun Dok, and yes. is it possible for people to understand the situation on a visceral level without having those experiences? Because you say you, you speak to sort of uh, young women and, and you try to express this in your book and is it really possible to convey this without those experiences that you've been through? I think so. I think so because um, there's an identification that every woman has. You know, that's why, you know, when the Me Too movement was, was uh, breaking out and mm. there was a lot of um, empathy, a lot of you know, moral support for yeah. it. Um, because every woman has experienced um, being uh, discriminated against. I mean, I was discriminated for being a girl, right? They Because my grandparents uh, or my grandfather, paternal grandfather and my father mm -hmm. had a preference for a son. And I mean, that's so common even today in, in some parts of, of Asia because the man can carry on the name and um, and also the the son is is considered the one to take care of the parents right and then when mm -hmm. when you have a daughter it's like watering someone else's um, field right or that that there's a proverb a Chinese proverb that, that goes something like that and um, and so I I think every woman has has felt uh, you know, like either assaulted or leered at or um, it's it's just yeah it's the journey of, of being female and, and perhaps um, even for Asian women, I mean, because we're exoticized, fetish, fetishized mm. um, in the West, right? And considered, I mean, there, there's been, yeah, just I've had many experiences where uh, I was treated like I didn't know what I was talking about because I was the Asian woman at the business table, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so I think there's an overcompensation that happens. Like in Hong Kong, the term dragon lady originated from, from here. Mm. <laughs> and it's because the women have to be ferocious in order to be taken seriously. And um, so, yeah, and for me, I didn't have like a deeper empathy and appreciation for what these um, women in Japanese forest prostitution went through until mm -hmm. I went through my own um, terrible rock bottom experience of a divorce after like a one year marriage. I, I rushed into the marriage um, because I, I wonder if those same generational forces were making me feel like I need to have a husband. You know, I was, I was turning 30, felt mm -hmm. like there, my chances of getting married were dwindling. Um, you know, I'm getting old. I have an expiry date. Like I felt like that. And my non-Asian friends, girlfriends, they don't feel that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, parents, they, they um, contribute by saying, oh, you know, the, the Asian mothers really want their, their daughters to be married early, have kids. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for my, my um, hardships because it, 
it opens open my eyes it opened my heart to um you know what what other women are are suffering and mm. and it helped put it in perspective because here i am you know i i have choices i'm a pro professional and uh it it made me realize you know i have the power of choice and these women have had their decisions stolen from them mm. so that's why it's it's my message one of my messages to uh, people, especially professionals, uh, women, that let's use the power of our decision making. Let's use our influence, our time, our talents to help those who are marginalized, to help those who are suffering, because we, we have the power to to help these people and to mm. change one life at a time. I'm very conscious of always trying to uh, talk to people rather than talk about people. And so when you mm -hmm. mentioned these, um, the, the, the woman's experience, the Asian woman's experience, the Me yeah. Too situation that yeah. created that sense of camaraderie. In your book, you do, you do focus on for some time Kim Hak-soon, the uh, mm -hmm. one of the first comfort women to come forward and, and to speak about her experiences. And then also, uh, I believe you, you interviewed and you met with the Kim Sun-dok, um in yeah. washington can you tell us anything about those women or sure sure yeah no and i and i've stayed for a week with um hong gumju and and the other uh, survivors in korea I, mm. I i stayed with them um at the house of sharing for um several days and and then in the other soul center the shimto uh, with with Hwang Gum Gumju, mm. and um, it's it was such an honor. Like I felt that that it was a sacred thing. Like it, it felt sacred talking with them. It reminded me of the Holocaust survivor I met in high school, mm. and it felt like wow, these women are they have so much, so like so much that we need to document. You know what uh, of what they went through, and um, and they. Yeah, they they're in, they're an important part of our history, and I was so glad that they found the courage to go against the grain of their culture and to speak out. That that takes mm -hmm. an incredible amount of courage, and it's also like a, a, a sign of it, it's it's evidence that what they're saying is true. Because why would they, in their their twilight years, want to put themselves out in the public eye exposing themselves and and lie about something you know mm -hmm. it, it just it wouldn't it, it wouldn't make sense and um the commonality among all of these survivors that that i interviewed and met and had the chance to just express my love and care and appreciation and honor you know honoring them mm -hmm. um i'd Say it was trauma. You know, the trauma never uh, was healed, and and I see the same in the modern day sex trafficking victims. They're they're traumatized as well, and it's it's that unresolved pain and the healing that they need that that prevents them from uh, yeah just fully walking out in freedom in in and in happiness. Mm. And uh, yeah, so my my heart went out to these women and. Um, I'm so glad that their stories are on tape, that, that there have been a lot of documentaries, especially in the last 10 years. But I remember first writing about them in 1999 and, um, and, and in, the, in the 2000s. And there was not a lot of interest. And even some of the leading human rights groups weren't, weren't supportive, right. believe it or not. I will not mention any names, but I, the UN was, but I'm talking about there's another human rights group that um, wasn't on board. And it was so mind-boggling. And I remember uh, in 1999 for my article for Rice Paper Magazine, it was an Asian Canadian magazine, and we tried to, I was an executive editor then, and we tried to really amplify the voices of Asian Canadian writers and, and artists. Mm -hmm. And um, and I interviewed Gabe McDougall as a junior you know, reporter. And Gabe McDougall is a legendary civil rights lawyer Nelson Mandela consulted with her on uh, the post-apartheid era, and she was a UN special rapporteur, and she wrote uh, a seminal uh, report on 
Japanese wartime uh, forced prostitution. And she told me by phone in 1999 mm. that the Japanese government had tried to stop her report and tried to cover it up. And, um, and she called it clearly it was, you know, there was racism it, as, as part of their motivation. And also, you know, they want to save face and not, not be, be seen as like the bad guy. Uh, but when Gabe McDougall told me that, that, wow, like the Japanese government is trying to cover up her report. And, um, and I remember in 2001, when I, after meeting Kim Sundok, I wrote an op-ed in the Globe and Mail, that's the national paper of record in Canada. Mm. And I wrote about how, you know, these women deserve an, a sincere apology that's healing and that, you know, we still have this, this generational uh, pain in the Korean community that we, that also needs to be addressed. And then after that came out, um, my friend, he was considered the leading investigative journalist, and he's now the, the head editor of, of a paper in Vancouver now. But at that time, um, someone from the Japanese embassy approached him to ask, who is Sylvia? Mm. What is she about? So they were digging stuff on me and trying to find out who I was. Right. Uh, and isn't that weird? Like, here I am, a young woman, like a young junior reporter. I wrote mm. this op-ed exposing comfort women and they were so they cared so much about their image that they would they would want to dig up intel on who I was it was it was just a really creepy feeling you've mentioned Sylvia um sort of uh perhaps interest from the Japanese and, and and what they want to do you've mentioned um let's say an international organization that's but not been supportive you've also sort of mentioned some uh, perhaps one of the organizations in Seoul, South Korea as well. Mm. I guess these very real and horrific experiences which um, uh, these women have gone through do sometimes become politi politicized and they become politicized for mm -hmm. various reasons, whether it's yes. national reputation, political gain, financial incentive. And yes. I, I think sometimes a lot of the public conversation gets focused on that controversy and that politicization mm -hmm. of the issue rather than the uh the the experiences and memories themselves which is what i think you do really well to focus on do you have any comment on the way this does get politicized do, do we sometimes lose sight of the issues is there something we can yeah. do to to remedy that or what's your take on how that's played out sylvia no that's a good question i i don't know if you could separate the two yes public memory is part of it and these women have to be remembered uh, but the solution to this is political as well it's it's i i think the japanese government issuing an unequivocal um, healing sin really sincere apology mm. that's very you know full of love and compassion for what these women have gone through without whitewashing it, watering it down, without um, the officials in Japan going to Yasukuni Shrine a week after they issue some statement saying they, they've already said they're sorry. Yeah. And, um, you know, which is hypocrisy. And, and I think even the current Japanese uh, prime minister has sent an offering to Yasukuni Shrine that honors class A war criminals um, who were instrumental, some of them in, in, uh, wartime forced prostitution and um, I, I think there's just a lack of, of um, compassion there that, mm -hmm. that really angers so many across Asia and it's inexplicable because it's, it's um, I, I mean what are they afraid of that, that, that these survivors are going to come and sue them? No, I mean I, they, they've given you know loads of, of funding to other countries. I mean, they gave 50 million to Afghanistan. You know, they, I, this was like 10 years ago, around mm -hmm. the time when this apology stuff was coming up again. Um, and I mean, I never would have imagined when I first started researching this, I never would have imagined that the comfort women or the wartime sex slaves um, would be at the center of foreign relations, right? Remember with the Comfort Women Accord mm -hmm. in 2015 between Japan and Korea? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, what's the word? It's mind boggling that this issue would be what is jamming 
relations mm -hmm. in some ways and, and for North Korea too. You know, all over Pyongyang, uh, according to several friends who, tr who used to travel there quite often, um, they, there are slogans, anti-Japanese slogans all over North Korea. I had the um, interesting experience of meeting um, North Korean delegates at this um, uh, Japanese wartime sex slavery conference at the mm. Hague, Netherlands. It was, it was quite, quite fascinating to talk with them and to hear their perspective. They're very passionate and fired up and they've preserved some comfort stations in, in the North. And um, wow. they've invited Japanese activists like Ken Aramitsu and other Japanese activists. They've been they've had the red carpet rolled out for them in North Korea because they've been raising awareness about the the Japanese wartime sex slavery victims. Um, so that's I, that's my cry. My heart is I hope, and I don't mean to sound like an angry activist, but mm. I think that's the solution to have the Japanese government issue a very healing apology that will once and for all put this to bed because every time Koreans and Chinese and even the Dutch and Indonesians and the Filipinos, I mean, whoever was affected by Japanese war crimes, mm. every time they get together with the Japanese, you know, in the Christian context, because I go to Christian conferences and, and whatnot, sometimes, um, the Japanese Christians always feel like they have to say sorry. and. Um, a few of them have even said to either myself or my friends, we're so tired of apologizing all the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're so tired of like saying sorry for the rape of Nanking and for, um, you know, the, the wartime sex slavery system. And I, you know, I, I am to, I, I hope we can move ahead, but unless that the, the wounds of history are healed through that sincere government apology, I don't know. I, I think it'll keep going on. And I think the younger generation um, have really caught caught this. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe they're going to let it go either. What should... So you've spoken about activism and people involved in various groups who are apologizing and nations being required to apologize. I guess for the, um, for the average person, Sylvia, for those who sometimes feel that they might be a little far removed from this situation because it's sometimes an uncomfortable topic or because yeah. they don't have any direct experience, maybe no members of their family or mm -hmm. they haven't been into the brothels and seen the, 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 the modern sex uh, trading that you've seen. What, do, what does a, a person today do to make this situation better? What is the responsibility of an ordinary citizen when faced with a story such as the one you've presented in A Long Road to Justice? Yeah, no, so, um, no, that's, you're such a great interviewer, David. <laughs> <laughs> you're so, you're so talented. Um, I would say it's, it's about, um, you know, global citizenship. We, we have a responsibility to, um, to give back to our society. And if one is not comfortable with global issues, I would encourage um, each person to uh, help and make a difference at the local level or with their friends, with their family. I mean, Mother Teresa said, you want to change the world, go love your family. Mm. And so, I, I mean, I'm very intentional with helping my family first. And, um, and that's, that's really important because, you know, what if you're helping everyone else and you're not helping your own family? Right. It doesn't make sense. But um, part of being a good global citizen is being informed. And some people will be drawn to this issue and others won't. And that's okay. Others will be more excited about um, the plastic waste and environmental climate change issues or, um, you know, refugees or ISIS or, you know. So each person has their own issue. And that's why I am um, campaigning along with my husband um, to encourage people to do global volunteerism or, or any kind of volunteerism at the grassroots level mm. to give their time, talents, and energies uh, to help an NGO out or do something on your social media uh, so that it's not just me, 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 me. And mm -hmm. because we can get really selfish, right? But I found that for myself when I was um, 
helping these people, helping people, helping people in need through um, humanitarian projects um, and and other other ways. I just felt the most happiest. I mm-hmm. felt the most content when I wasn't consuming and being selfish. I think um, we started with the the John Donne poem, "No Man Is an Island," and that seems like the message on which you leave it, Sylvia. You know, do not yes. ask for whom the bell tolls; the bell tolls for yes. thee. As yes. uh, if my memory serves. Um, this has been fantastic, Sylvia. I'm I'm going to stop it here because we've done an hour, and and that's how long Thank I like you. to keep it. it did Thank you have you. any final thing, words, or things to say just before we draw it to a close? Those who don't remember history are condemned to repeat it and it's it's very vital that the koreans um remember look into their history and uh, i want to encourage them to release any kind of generational bitterness trauma racism towards the japanese and um so that we can move into uh you know freedom move into uh healing you know with with these nations and Mm. healing for the the next generation so that there is nothing traumatic and painful and or like han to be passed down